Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pod save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. I'm your host, Anne Griffith, and I have a special guest today. It is the writer Elizabeth Basford, who has written a book all about Princess Mary. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So it's always nice to see new faces during the lockdown because we may be recording on audio, but we have the delights of a little video call going on as well. So it's always fun to catch up with new people. So um, your royal book is out. People, I suspect, maybe most likely to know Princess Mary, possibly from Downton Abbey. Yes, yes, that is the big one, I think. Um, Princess Mary was portrayed in the um, in the Downton Abbey film as a very unhappy princess who was uh, unhappily married. Um, her husband had post-traumatic stress um, and she was considering leaving him. Now, I wouldn't say anything against Downton Abbey because I know so many people love it, including a lot of uh, members of my family. Um, and I love Julian Fellows and I love his writing as well. Um, and I think all he was doing was he was just taking something that there'd been a rumour about this for many, many years. And he was just developing a storyline based upon it. Um, but as I discovered, nothing could have been further from the truth about Princess Mary. So, who was Princess? Who was Princess Mary? If you introduce her mm. to our listeners, so Princess Mary was the only daughter of George V and Queen Mary. Um, so she was the daughter of a king, and she also had two brothers who were kings as well. So her brother David, as she called him, was Edward VIII, later the Duke of Windsor, and her other brother was George VI. And she's obviously the Queen's aunt as well. Yes, she's the current Queen's aunt as well, yes. Yeah. It's it's quite um daunting looking back to those bits of sort of royal family history because now we kind of we kind of know, you know, you've got uh, you've got Anne and Charles and Andrew and Edward and their children and we're kind of all familiar with that, but you go a bit beyond into the sort of the Gloucesters and the Kents or mm. further back and then suddenly there's there's more people and it all gets a bit more complicated. Yes, yes. And the lines didn't always go, you know, we look at it, we look at the royal family now and I think we think, you know, we've got the Queen and then it'll be Prince Charles and then it'll be Prince William and then it'll be Prince George. But a century ago, it really didn't work out like that at all because it was um, it was Mary's uncle who should have been king originally and should have married her mother. Yes, that's right. Queen Mary was considered to be a, the perfect bride 
for Prince Albert Victor, who was the son of Edward VII. Um, and they were engaged and the wedding had gone quite far. I think she'd chosen her dress and they'd planned everything. And then terribly, tra tragically, Edward came down with the flu and a really bad flu um, during a pandemic as well. Um, and sadly, he died. Um, and so poor old Mary had been so close to becoming queen eventually and she felt that was it it was all over um and also queen mary who was called princess may before then was actually only a serene highness because her father was the product of a morganatic marriage um and so that is why she'd sort of like been looking forward to at last becoming her royal highness um, and so I think there was a period of about a year or so um, and Queen Mary's mother, Princess Mary Adelaide of Cambridge, uh, was very keen uh, to make sure that her daughter didn't lose out um, and certain things were arranged between the two. And they kind of uh, got together and helped each other with their grief um, at losing Prince Eddie, as he was called. Um, and then eventually George did ask Mary to marry him um, and the rest is history. And obviously they became parents to Princess Mary. Well, they had six children altogether. They had Princess Mary, and obviously they had five boys as well. A boisterous household in in very very many ways, and I think I think there's a lot of things of reading the book. You can tell how much has changed. Like even just looking at her godparents, sort of this list of you know people royals from around Europe, because obviously it was it was pre the First World War, and the First World War obviously changed so many things yeah. for everybody, but also very um, sort of acutely for the royal family changing their names and sort of yeah. their, their perception and that kind of thing. I did enjoy the story about um, about the proposal between Mary's parents, where there was a bit of a, it wasn't, it almost didn't quite happen. Yes. And then, <laughs> I do, don't you want to go and show her the frogs <laughs> in the garden? It just makes you think of old fairy tales and princesses kissing frogs to find them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just quite a fun, a fun moment. Um, You've described her sort of in the in the subheading of the book as the first modern princess. Mm. Um, what do you think the job description was for a princess before Mary? And what do you think she turned it into? I think in a way, the job of a princess was almost sort of like it didn't have a job description. Um, you know, you look at princesses before Mary, and although they may have done sort of like minor work in terms of, there were several who became nurses and things like that. I mean, Queen Alexandra, when she was Princess of Wales, she did do a lot of charity work. Um, and I think the key to being a princess up until Princess Mary was to be a patron of charities. But Princess Mary inherited this like social conscience. And I think in the book, I show you how I believe very strongly that that came from her maternal grandmother, um, Princess Mary Adelaide, um, who was a wonderful creature. And um, 
because she had the nickname, you know, Fat Mary, because she was said to be something like over 20 stone. Um, and obviously when she walked into a room, um, she had an incredible presence. Um, Queen Victoria used to give her an allowance uh, every year. And Queen Victoria said to her, look, I give you a very good allowance. Why is it that you're still in debt with the amount of money you're receiving? And Mary Adelaide said, well, it's because I give most of it away. Um, and she had this real sort of social conscience, not just wanting to give money away, but there was a story, I think, that's in the book where she sees this little old lady who's trying to pick sticks for a fire. Um, and she suddenly gets all of her children and says, right, come on, we're going to help her. And they all start picking up sticks, you know, um, to help this little old lady. Um, and I think then by association, you have Queen Mary, who was heavily involved in a lot of her charity work. And we often think of Queen Mary as this sort of like rather forbidding woman, you know, very upright and very proper and correct. Um, and yet Queen Mary wasn't afraid to like pull her hands up and get her hands dirty. Um, there's also another really wonderful image of her I liked, which was when they were trying to organize um, sort of like jumble sales um, to help with the clothing guild um, to recycle clothing and make it into other things. Queen Mary had this huge apron she used to put on and a massive pair of scissors. Um, and she would walk in and say, right, come on, let's get on. <laughs> With it. So I think Princess Mary has got this like influence of women. And because most of her associations were, I mean, she had five brothers. Um, I think she looked up to her mother. She never knew her grandmother, but she would have heard stories about her. And that kind of made Princess Mary think about the fact that she wanted to be actively involved in charities, not just a figurehead. Um, and I think that is the key difference. And my own sort of like experience of what a princess should be is growing up and seeing Princess Diana. And I remember at the time people used to say, oh, Diana's breaking the mold. She's doing things that a princess has never done before, you know. And we saw Diana like shaking hands with AIDS victims. Um, which was a huge step at the time. But we all think it was Diana who started that. And yet we look back and we see actually it was Princess Mary who did that nearly a hundred years ago. So taking on the challenges of their different times, but kind of with similar gusto, I guess. And I think there would probably have been a few people who might have been cursing Princess Mary at various stages of the First World War when she had the brilliant idea to send all of the troops and all of the sailors a, a Christmas present, which is a lovely, lovely, lovely thought, but massively <laughs> impractical. But it's that classic thing of like, I've had this great idea and it's going to happen and now everybody else has got to go and do it. 
Yes, I think the the First World War tenet originally came from Mary's idea that she'd, she'd got rather a lot of personal money, you know, she wasn't married at the time, and she wanted to give everybody a nice little present. And she looked at her brothers, what they were doing during the First World War, and she wanted to do something um, that she could look back on and said, yes, I did that and I helped in some way. And obviously, as you just said, she came up with this idea to send all service men uh, and even service women um, a little present for Christmas that year. Um, and I think it was quite soon mentioned to her that it was a bit too ambitious for her to do it herself. And there were also like a lot of logistic problems. How were they actually going to get it? Because apparently it was hard enough getting the mail to the servicemen during the First World War, um, let alone sending them all a gift. And then there were other things to consider, like what should they send them? What would be appropriate? Because although a lot of people smoked, I think it was something like eight, 70 or 80% at that time, you couldn't send cigarettes to India. There were certain things to think about. Um, and what about women? Because it was frowned upon if women smoked as well. So there were all these considerations and they set up this committee. And I think Sir Winston Churchill was actually on the committee as well. And it was made up of some really um, illustrious people. But when I was doing the research, everybody like, when I was reading books about it, and there's even a lovely children's book about the story of this princess who helped all these soldiers during the First World War. And there are all these lovely, idyllic, you know, stories. And I went into the Imperial War Museum and I was reading a letter from the man who was actually tasked with organizing get the distribution and getting it all set out. And it reminded me of, do you know, in Star Trek, when they used to be Scotty and they used to go, we can't take any more, Captain, you know, like that. <laughs> and, and the man was going, I don't think you realize how bad getting all this stuff is going to be. He said, you know, it's an absolute nightmare i know it's a lovely idea i know she wants to help um but i mean it was like it wasn't until although it was originally planned to come at christmas 1914 it wasn't until i think 1920 or something that everybody actually got their tins and what you then start to see in the newspapers which is quite amusing is you have the odd soldier and he says you know um, I came under fire um, and I would have been shot in the heart if I hadn't have had my Princess Mary tin in my top pocket and then I found another one and then I found more and more and more and it was like they were all jumping on this bandwagon of saying it had saved their life just so they could get publicity but I mean, it was, I think in my book, I describe it as being, it's an incredible idea, but slightly naive um, of her, you know, to just think you just send all these tins, but it made so many servicemen love 
Princess Mary and, and they just thought it's my Princess Mary Tim and when she toured Canada because she she absolutely loved Canada when she went there when she was much older um, I think she went there for a 50th commemoration of the First World War or something all these men got out their tins that they kept um, and also as well in the book I contacted the Henry Williams Society and you know Henry Williamson wrote Tarka the Otter um, and Henry Williamson had actually written about the Princess Mary Tin, and he had spoken about how um, all the fighting sort of uh, stopped on Christmas Day and the ceasefire, you know, when they the, the British and the Germans um, had a game of football or went up to each other and, and, and shared things between them. And a lot of the men did give things out of their Princess Mary tins to the German soldiers. Um, so it's, it's an incredible part of history. There is actually going to be a book, I think, towards the end of this year or next year, um, all about the actual fund and the tin itself. So Princess Mary gets two mentions in a year, which is wonderful, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's like buses, none for ages, and they're to come along at once. I just, I just love the fact that nobody just said to actually no. This, this is just yeah. not, this is just not going to work. We're going to plow on. We're going to make it. We're going to make it happen. Um, so nursing, that was where she sort of really first, you know, got her hands dirty as such, mm. and really um, got involved at Great Ormond Street, and was, you know was a working nurse on on the ward a couple of days a week mm, yes when she was it was a 21st birthday i mean she couldn't come out as they used to do in those days because of uh, the war and everything um and george v although he could be strict with her he was softer with her than with the other um with the boys and he said to her what would you like for your 21st birthday and she said, I would like to train as a nurse. And um, so he, he allowed her to, because at the time as well, you've got George V starting to look at the monarchy and think about, we need to change our view. We need to be shown to serve our people rather than rule them, you know. I mean, and a, what a better sort of like publicity stunt than she trains as a nurse. So she went to Great Ormond Street and um, I think it was uh, two days a week and she served on the Alexandra Ward, which was actually named after her uh, grandmother. And for many years, um, I think she had patronised the uh, Great Ormond Street because in those days, before the NHS, people used to... Um, have cots that were sort of like patronized by people and there was a princess mary cot in one of the wards um, but anyway she'd always shown a huge fascination with medical knowledge and uh, to such an extent that queen mary had actually invited a lot of um lecturers on medicine to come to buckingham palace and talk to them about medicine um, and it was a very she was very keen on this when she started doing it as well the matron said 
to Princess Mary. Obviously, you're a princess, you know, and we might have, uh, we need to think about what's going to happen if we have to evacuate the building. Um, she said, you know, what, what about things like changing nappies? What about, you know, all, all the gruesome stuff of, you know, children and everything? And Princess Mary just went, no, I want to be treated the same. And, you know, people might look at that with a bit of scepticism and say, oh, you know, she's very privileged and she's saying she wants to be treated the same. But that was quite something at the time. Um, and for her to actually, you know, get her sleeves rolled up, change nappies, um, but she didn't just do that. This is what I find with Princess Mary. She doesn't just do something that's good. She kind of extends it further. And what she did was she also did an additional course in surgical procedures so that she could help in surgery, which, you know, it, she must have been pretty good at nursing. Um, and then what it did was when she then went around the country and she made a sort of like decision that she was going to try and visit as many hospitals in the country as she could, she had an understanding. And if you look at the Duchess of Cambridge at the moment, who, you know, she did uh, midwifery, didn't she? I think she did uh, a little bit of midwifery and, and it enabled her to understand more about being a midwife um, and nursing. And I think that comparison is quite interesting. You know, Princess Mary was doing that 100 years ago. And obviously it was an important thing to do because now the Duchess of Cambridge has done it as well. Um, and, and it's that kind of like Princess Mary wasn't just going around shaking hands and saying, here you go, um, you know, open this building. She was actually making sure that when she went to these places, she had something to talk to them about. And I think some of that may have come from, you know, obviously she had a certain intelligence, but also Princess Mary was inherently shy and she struggled all the time to give speeches um, and to speak to the public. So perhaps this was her way as well of overcoming some of her shyness. Um, it's probably not surprising as one daughter among a lot of sons that she ended up sort of having an interest in um, girls and women and kind of their causes over the rest of her life, really. So Girl Guides being one of them, which is now um, with Sophie Wessex. But that remained a kind of interest in her area of um, of work, really. Mm. And, and I mean, it's like with everything with her, she doesn't just go and open something. She actually spent time with the girl guides, went camping with them, you know, went on some of their expeditions. And it just, I don't know if, um, you know, other people feel this, but, you know, in the 1920s, that was quite something for a princess to do that. But she also as well, she was very... Um, much interested in girls education and she used to champion all um all girls education um and uh, she actually went to uh wakefield girls high school and she said to them oh you know i've got to give this speech um is there anything that you'd actually like 
And they said, well, we could really do with a school hall because we haven't got one and it's really hard, you know, to do prize givings and all this type of stuff for schools. So she said, well, leave it with me. And then on her, when she gave the speech, she starts to say to people, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if we had a school hall? I'm going to give a small contribution to this fund. And it's raised within like a couple of weeks. They put up this hall and it's still there today and it's still being used by the school. And so, okay, yes, yeah, she was a member of the royal family and she did have an incredibly privileged life in some ways, but she really did want to do something. Um, and she wasn't just a princess to just, oh, this is it, I'll open the hall and that's it. She wanted people to remember her um, as well. One of the things that I don't think has changed a lot, and actually I was quite surprised by, is reading the sort of the newspaper clippings of, oh, might she be getting married, and could this be, could this be her future husband? And you know, it's <laughs> some things really don't change, and that sort of focus yeah. and go- gossip. I mean, everyone everyone loves a bit of uh, royal fairy tale, hopeful or, you know, <laughs> and love. I mean, that's why we watch the soaps and um, you know all of the showbiz toing and froing. It was like a bit a good bit of romance mm. um we talked at, at the top about the sort of the downton abbey mm. representation mm. of her of her love life like what's what what's your view of it or how well, it all I unfolded think when i saw princess mary in the downton abbey film it was very different to the princess mary that i came to know over the you know over the course of researching this book Princess Mary, because she spent her life with boys, she was very tomboyish. Um, When you look at her as she grows up, she's quite frumpy a lot of the time. She she has periods where she dresses a little bit glamorous, but she's quite frumpy as well. All of her ladies-in-waiting were always older than her. And she didn't really, although she did have sort of like... um, some friends that were girls often she was friends with much older girls as well so when we when we think about you know who would have been the perfect person for her she wasn't going to just go for like some sort of romantic figure who was you know gorgeous drop dead gorgeous and you know um i don't know whether you know, people's like interpretations of romance, that sort of Mr. Darcy or, you know, type of figure. And for Mary, intelligence was very important. And um, when she met Harry, the thing I felt about Harry was he was just perfect for her because he was older than her. He was immensely wealthy. He inherited a huge amount of money. Um, from his uncle um, who had left it to him and he was an intelligent man he loved paintings he loved art but he also took an interest in science Um, he was very interested in veterinary science and things like that so between the two of them and and also there were things like gardening He, he loved gardening as well which Mary loved So between the two of them, I don't think you could have found anybody who suited her better. But the the other thing to think about is Queen Mary, I think, wanted Mary to stay at home because, as you said, 
um, after the First World War, it wasn't as though she could marry somebody from Germany, you know, from one of the German states or anything like that anymore. Um, she didn't have that chance. And Queen Mary and George V had actually decided that they would allow their children to marry members of the aristocracy. So marrying someone who was English would mean that she wouldn't go abroad. But Queen Mary really did want to keep Princess Mary for herself, you know, a little bit like Alexandra um, and her daughter. And she wanted a sort of companion because they were quite similar. But by Mary marrying Harry, in a way, it was like her emancipation because it meant that she didn't have to stick with her mum and dad for the rest of her life. She could marry this man who was enormously wealthy, who could give her an amazing life. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been. Um, Goldsborough Hall was where they first lived, and it's the most beautiful place ever. It's really romantic. Um, you can actually go and stay there still. And my husband took me there for my 50th, so it's, it's like, it's a beautiful place. Harewood is like a sort of royal palace because it's got all these Renaissance paintings and it's got incredible Chippendale furniture. So he, he's sort of like, you can see why he's sort of a better match for Mary. Um, he, a lot of people have said that he, he could be rather pompous and he could you know um th there's a brilliant quote i think where the duke of windsor once said um lassels is getting more and more royal and i am becoming less and less royal you know at one point um but i think he was also a very very kind man i mean i looked at a lot of papers in the imperial war museum for men who served under him and he wasn't a pushover. He had an opinion and he was, you know, a strong man, but he was also an incredibly kind man. And Mary had a lot of kindness within herself as well. So, and I think what people tend to do is they look at someone and they judge who somebody has married based upon their own sort of terms. And they think, God, I wouldn't marry him. He's a real ugly bloke. But you know, he could give Mary this life. They had a lot in common. And when he died, she was just absolutely devastated. And apparently her gardener said that if he ever said to her, oh, can we move this tree or this bush? If Harry had put it in, she would not allow anybody to touch it at all. And throughout the rest of her life, I mean, it was nearly 20 years that she was on her own as a widow she took her sort of like um, a, a little uh, double frame around with her wherever she went of Harry. And the first thing she did when she got into her hotel room was put that up. Um, and then the other thing I discovered, because for years there's been this rumour that she didn't attend the wedding of Princess Elizabeth, you know, now our Queen, because she was angry at the fact that the Duke of Windsor hadn't been invited. But that's just totally wrong because Mary wrote a letter to uh, a very close friend of hers, which I read, and it said, please don't tell anybody this, but I just can't go to the wedding because it's in the place where I married Harry and he died 
just over six months ago and I just couldn't cope with it. And that's why she didn't go. But you see, all the years it's been said, oh, you know, she was really angry because the Duke of Windsor didn't go. So kind of like when I was making, you know, the final decision and deciding what sort of couple they were, I think they were just perfect for each other. And I also saw some of the letters they'd sent to each other in the build-up to their marriage. And it's just like any other normal couple. You know, it's like I'm counting down the days till I see you. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to do this. So I know also as well, when we look at him, he was incredibly unphotogenic. Um, and he, he, he did look a, a little bit sort of, I don't know, is it hangdog expression or something like that? But that was not the type of thing that would upset Mary. Mary wouldn't be bothered about that. She was looking more for friendship, I think, with the added bonus that, you know, she was going to have children and a family as well. You talking about those letters, it's just made me realise, you know, future you in however many decades time that comes to write about, I don't know, William and Catherine and how they fell yeah. in love and got together, you know, text messages and WhatsApp messages. And I know. They're not going to be quite the same record of, uh, and availability in the archives, really, are they? It's going to be an entirely different it how is. people do things. It is, totally. And I wonder how they're actually going to do it because um, Mary was an inveterate uh, letter writer. Um, I think her son said something of her that um, dinner until it was after the last post because she would literally write right up until the very last post and then send the letters out. But originally... I'd, I'd sort of thought, you know, where am I going to find this information? And I found it all over the place and not necessarily in the place where I thought it was. I mean, I found a lot of really interesting stuff in the Royal Archives, which was about her relationship with the Duke of Windsor um, and all stuff regarding the abdication. Um, but I do wonder what is going to happen with, with modern people unless they will do it on sort of like videos and television interviews or something oh, like that interesting dilemma so what are the royal archives like are you allowed to tell us about them mm. or do you have to be sworn to secrecy it is just the most amazing place to go to and when you sit there in the royal archives um and you're doing your research you think gosh this place is just amazing um I have a really bad back problem, which makes me struggle with any sort of um, like uh, hill or stairs or anything like that. And in order to get to the Royal Archives, um, you have to climb over a hundred steep concrete stairs. Now they do have a stair lift, but the stair lift doesn't always work. And it didn't work when I went. And I also as well, you go to the Royal Archives, which are in the round tower of Windsor Castle, and they're right at the top of a really steep hill as well. So it's basically, if, if you've got any form of back problem or leg problem, you've had it really. And um, anyway, I remember um, I went to the little office because you have to go to the office first and you have to have clearance. You have to have police clearance, obviously, and everything. And I, I went and knocked on the door to the office. And the first thing I see is like 20 really steep steps. <laughs> I'm like thinking, gosh, 
that's it. I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, and so I had to like sort of speak to them on their intercom and they came down and they said, right, we're going to send somebody to come and get you. And while I was there, I was seeing all these like little buggies and I thought, oh, they must put you in a buggy and they must like push, you know, you go in there. Well, they don't. Anyway, um, a man called Colin Parrish came and I said to him, is it really far? Is it very steep? And he went, yes, it's, it's really steep. And I said, oh, I've got this back problem. Um, do, do you think it would be better if I just didn't go? You know. And he went, well, let's just give it a go and see how we do. And he was just lovely. He was so kind. Um, and he helped me because, as I say, you know, I struggle with mobility. And we got to the 100 steps in the round tower. And as I say, we went on the first bit of the uh, stair lift and it worked. But then it broke, and so it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't work for the remainder of the 70 steps or something. And so I had to climb them up. But with Colin at the side, and he was just lovely. And he said, come on, you've come all this way. Um, you don't want to go now, do you? So he was absolutely lovely. So then I get up there, and I think people think Royal Archives is like a library, and you can sort of go and go, oh, look, George has heard, I'll have that, and I'll have that, and I'll look at this. But I think everything is sort of like put in shelves in boxes um, in certain different places. Um, you're not allowed to take anything in there at all, apart from, like, pencils. And I could take my laptop in, but obviously you couldn't use a camera or anything like that. Um, and I sat in a room and there were portraits of Queen Victoria's children up there. And I, out of the window, I could see like the whole of the, um, I think, is it called the Royal Mile that goes through Windsor Great Park and all the way up. Um, and it was just wonderful. It was just the most incredibly amazing place to visit. Um, and when I've been thinking about doing another book, I, I must say, I'm sort of like thinking, yeah, I did love it there. And it was an incredible place, but I don't think I can get up that hill again. <laughs> Ring and check the stair lift is working. I'm coming back <laughs> if the stair lift is working. I've got mm. visions now of almost like a, you know, when you go into the police evidence files, when they're digging out the cold cases mm. and they've got the racks and the boxes of evidence is it a bit more like that rather than the like yes it is it is it, it really does look like that because how funny there's um there's like there is a lift i think because there's different floors and everything like that but they do bring these things out for you and uh, some of the things i looked at i looked at queen mary's diary because i love queen mary i just find her such a fascinating character and I was I, I sat there and I was like thinking, gosh, this is Queen Mary's diary. This is the person that my grandma used to tell me about and I'm reading her diary. And I don't think people realize, but Queen Mary had an incredible sense of humor, but her, her diaries don't tend to give away an awful lot. Like for example, um, I looked at the ones around the abdication and it's like um, the the only thing she says about it is David wants to give up the throne to marry Mrs Simpson, and there's four exclamation marks, and that's <laughs> it. 
<laughs> I don't know whether you can call four exclamation marks on the statement, but I think probably on this occasion yeah. you can. I was going to ask you about Princess Mary and the abdication crisis, mm. because that's, you know, mm. her oldest brother, who was expected to be the king, mm. essentially choosing not to be, making his younger brother take the job. Mm. Um, how did she experience that whole situation? I think the, so at the Royal Archives, um, I did read a lot of the letters between Mary and David um, during and af immediately after the abdication. Mary was also the first person to go and visit him in exile because when he first went, he went to Austria and he went to Vienna and she went out to see him there. But growing up, they were very, very close. And David often said that Mary was more suited to being a monarch because she had that sort of innate sense of duty. I mean, if you look at our queen now, who is amazing and has got that incredible sense that this is my duty, this is what God put me here to do and I will do it. That I think is what Princess Mary had and, and Queen Mary had it as well. David, I don't think, did. Um, and I, my view of the abdication, I mean, because I've read so much, like most people, you know, I'm fascinated by it as much as everybody else. But it was a huge shock for the family. Even though David had sort of given indications that he wasn't a big fan of all the royal pomp and ceremony and everything like that and that he wanted to sort of like change things um, he didn't like things like the fact that if he wanted something to eat he had to call somebody up to come and you know it was all these sort of like things that he had to um, adhere to but you can tell in the letters between Mary and David that she really did love her brother and she saw the abdication as two things. There was the fact that she felt David should be king because it was his duty and she agreed with duty, but also this was her brother and she loved him and she wanted him to be happy. And so what I always feel runs through all these abdication letters that are included in the book is it's almost like she's disassociating him and the abdication. So it's like a kind of, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner. So she can't believe he's done it and she's angry at him for doing it. But at the same time, it's her brother. And there's some really lovely touches in the letters, like um, she gives him a special prayer book. She worries about him. She talks about, you know, I, I hated leaving you when we came to visit. I just felt so awful about her. But also at certain times of Princess Mary's life, she does change her view, but only slightly, depending on who she's talking to. So when like Queen Mary um, is saying, oh, you know, David's been harassing Bertie, who was George VI at the time, about he needs more money and everything. Um, Princess Mary would sort of join in with that and say things like, oh, it must be her, she must be, you know. 
And yet, when Princess Mary did eventually meet Wallace, the Dutch, the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester had met Wallace sort of like really briefly in the 1930s, in the late 1930s. But Mary was the first one to actually meet Wallace. Um, she did actually say, I think it was something like, you know, she was a very charming woman, you know, she didn't have any devil horns like I'd been led to be <laughs> or anything like that. So, and also as well, I mean, it, it helped me, you know, because I had an older brother who I was incredibly close to and I could just, and my brother sometimes did things I didn't agree with. I mean, nothing as major as abdicating the throne. <laughs> But, you know, and, and you do sometimes with a sibling, you have that really close relationship, but you just don't want to lose the person as your brother or sister. So I found that really fascinating. I mean, David did say some things over the years about Queen Mary, and I think he sometimes said things about, you know, his female relatives had ice running through their veins but I think it, it just depended on what was happening to him um, and whether he was angry with how he was being treated or um, what he perceived was happening to him. And when George VI became king what kind of support was Mary to him and then I guess what kind of a role did she play when her niece then went on to become queen she was this is the other thing you see with her as well is that I mean her and Bertie were close-ish but they weren't as close as her and David but she supported him um, and you see her during the coronation and she was like looking after Elizabeth and Margaret who were little girls at the time um, and she I think you know she, she did a lot of engagements during the Second World War she did a phenomenal amount of work going all over the place in the country to support Bertie um, and she would always do that because that was part of her innate sense of duty when the Queen came to the throne, which was a shock for all the family, because obviously they were expecting um, him to live longer, um, Princess Mary was one of the few people still around who could remember things like how the Monday money service was meant to happen and how various different ceremonies were meant to take place. So the Queen relied on her a lot. Um, and also when the Queen had her... Old, her, her children when she was older, when she had Edward and Andrew, um, I think it was in 1964, just it's actually a year before Mary died, but um, Princess Mary represented her in some independence ceremonies. So they were, you know, Mary was always there for them and uh, various different members of the family she supported. Um, sort of Mary's record of, of duty and things. I've always sort of looking at it, it was more, I felt that she probably had more in common with maybe Princess Anne than Princess Margaret in terms of their roles as princesses who weren't going to become queen. Yes, and actually there's rather... Um, I have a Princess Mary Instagram account and a Facebook page where people where I post like a lot of stuff all about Mary and everything and the amount of people who say to me that looks like Princess Anne 
And it's not just the fact that they look like each other. They have that dislike of fuss, that sort of like, you know, um, they want to um, contribute in some way. Um, my own story of how I became fascinated by Princess Mary is like in the 1970s, my great grandparents, because I used to love hearing their stories about the royal family. And they gave me a book which had been um, originally a 25th Silver Jubilee book about George V and his reign. Um, And I must have been about five or something. I was really little and I looked. And at the time, one of my teachers, because this was in the 70s, was fascinated by Princess Anne because she uh, got married, I think, not long after that or something. And I looked in this book that my great-grandparents had given me, and I can remember saying to my mum, why is Princess Anne in this book? And why is she married to this really old man? Um, And so, you know, it's like kind of... And and one thing I do do on my uh, social media, and people love this, is I will put pictures up of Mary because... You know, Queen Mary's genes, I think, are so strong that a lot of the ladies do resemble each other. I mean, if you look at... People don't realise this, but Princess Mary does look a lot like Princess Margaret and the Queen and Princess Anne. And people love it when, you, you know, you put them side by side and say... But I'm fascinated by all of that. Um, I think the trouble with Princess Mary is that she's not sort of glamorous. I mean, I love Princess Margaret and, you know, because she's just so beautiful and glamorous, isn't she? Whereas Princess Mary was sort of more staid and frumpy. Um, But there are so many similarities with Princess Anne because also as well, Princess Anne is really into horses and horse racing and Princess Mary was as well. And Princess Anne has inherited a lot of the charities uh, and the patronages that Princess Mary had. So, yeah. So we we sort of touched briefly earlier on um, the Duchess of Cambridge and Diana, Princess of Wales, and sort of their um, sort of hands-on approach, I guess, and sort of caring and being in those kind of caring areas. Um, So we kind of talked a little bit about them, but thinking about Princess Charlotte, she's got the opportunity again to sort of redefine what being a princess will be and particularly because she she will she beats her little brother for this for the succession because, because of the change so you know she will i mean the chance the chances are her brother may well have got children by the time yeah by the time yeah. he does eventually become kings you know <laughs> hopefully this is all a long 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 way in the future but um she will have that challenge as arguably Margaret and Andrew and um, Harry mm-hmm. before her of what is that what is that role when you are one of the royal children or royal siblings um, and and you your destiny is not the throne how do you how do you make a useful and sort of valuable life and a contribution how do, how do you see that role sort of evolving in the future? Well, I've got an enormous amount of respect for the Duchess of Cambridge for a lot of reasons. Um, I 
I mean, I wasn't sort of like hugely enamoured with her because I'm not that sort of person. I'm more interested in royal history. But to see the way that her and William have responded to this pandemic, I think is absolutely wonderful. But also as well, if you look at the, the causes she's championing and how she's bringing up her children, I think that is a one, you know, they, they discuss things like they, they go out and they've got, you know, they do a lot of outdoorsy stuff, don't they? She's very up on mental health and how that might affect her children, you know, which is, which is really good. So I have a lot of respect for her. I think that by the time that either, I mean, because if she does become the Princess Royal Charlotte, it, It'll probably not be for 30 odd years yet, would it, or something like that. So she would be quite old when she did it. But I think she's got the role model of her mum, who is very much hands on as a royal. And I think, you know, the princesses, specifically Princess Mary, Princess Diana, um, the Duchess of Cambridge, over the years, they've added more meaning, each of them, to the role of a princess. So that by the time Princess Charlotte becomes a princess, then perhaps things will be even more um, involved with everything. Um, I think as well, like Charlotte to me, I mean, I, I'm fundamentally a teacher. She seems a very bright little girl, you know, and very sort of sparkly. And um, I think perhaps, you know, she'll, she'll definitely go on to doing well in whatever field she she decides to pursue or anything like that but, but um i mean they have a more normal upbringing i think as well because they're going to i know it's a preparatory school but they're going to a proper school aren't they it's not like they're being educated in the palace um i would have assumed that because kate um has a close family and friends that they will have been brought up with other children and you know, in the same way that we bring our children up as well. Um, so I think, as I say, I think it's been a build-up over the years. I mean, Diana did a lot, didn't she? Because she took her boys to, like, Alton Towers, uh, <laughs> you know, and gave them a more normalised upbringing. Um, I think I think the, the only thing that I think will happen is because... Charlotte does look quite significantly like William and therefore she does look like Diana as a young woman and I think over the years people will compare them and she may have to sort of like show her own independence and show people who she is um, but I think the monarch is in a really good position at the moment with William and, and Catherine um, I, I've got a lot of respect for them um, and, and you do feel very much like they are supporting the Queen and they are supporting Prince Charles as well. Um, so, yes, it, it, I don't know if I'll be around to see her become Princess Royal. I hope for my, I'll be in my 80s by then. Oh, well, <laughs> so lots, lots of exciting things to look forward to. And when you were talking there, I think, you know, we started off saying, well, maybe, maybe there wasn't really a job description for a princess before and arguably there probably still isn't one now there's kind of suggestions and there's there's expected but possibly each generation has found new ways to 
break the mold and and define it for themselves and that's a whole other opportunity for charlotte so you know we'll see her on tiktok in a few <laughs> years i mean there's been a couple of little things hasn't there because i remember this the start of the last lockdown william was doing something on uh, a charity program wasn't he where he said he was missing EastEnders or something like that um, they've been on Radio 1 haven't they which is quite funny and I think it's nice to see they've got a sense of humour um, as well because we always think of rural people being slightly distant but they're showing you that they're just a normal family um, and they and, and I think Kate went on uh, Giovanna Fletcher's podcast didn't she and you know she was brilliant on that because she was talking about uh really serious morning sickness that she's you know and we could see that she'd had the same worries as any other mother or um new parent would have as well so yeah a lot has a lot has changed since the days of princess mary but in some ways not so much as well um thank you so much for joining us today elizabeth if people would like to see even more about princess mary the uh the social media accounts are at Princess Mary, Princess Royal. The book is Princess Mary, the First Modern Princess, published by History Press, um, and it's out now. So um, you can check that one out. And Elizabeth, it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you and finding out about, you know, a, a, a branch of the royals that I had a lot less knowledge about and also discovering more about the archives. I might have to see see what it takes to get in there. Maybe I need to write, <laughs> work out a book that... I can write myself so I can go do some research down there and see what's what. Or, I mean, um, if you liked, what we could do is you could be my legs and do the work for me. (laughs) (laughs) Research assistant. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, brilliant to talk to you. Do take care. Um, Listeners, thank you so much for joining us as ever. Um, We hope you enjoyed that little exploration of some royal history. Uh, We will see you on our social media accounts as well, at Podsave on Twitter and Instagram. So let us know what you think of things there. And we look forward to bringing you more uh, more interesting guests and uh, fun chatter on future episodes very soon i'm sure but until then please stay safe stay well and until next time save the queen <laughs> <laughs>